Today's scripture reading is from Job 13, verses 13 through 18. Job 13, verse 13. Let me have silence, and I will speak. And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he may slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words, and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. This is the reading of God's word. Let's turn one more time to Philippians, Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 1, verse 12 through 20. We will see how Job 13 fits in with our passage this morning. Philippians 1, 12 through 20. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed For the defense of the gospel, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this passage this morning, Notice what he says, yes, and I will rejoice. What in the world is he rejoicing in? (laughs) Is he rejoicing because he feels good? No. Is he rejoicing because he has the best accommodations? No. Is he rejoicing because he has the best company the world can provide? I mean, last night, I I think Steve, y'all know, 48 years these guys have been married, and they had each other's company last night. That's probably pretty good company. He doesn't have that kind of company, okay? Does he rejoice because uh, he has chains on his wrist and, and chains on his ankles? No. Does he rejoice because everything is going his way? No. Well, why does he rejoice? He rejoices He says this because he knows something. Notice what it says there. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know. 
Well, what does he know? Now, we all sing this song, don't we? Don't we sing that song? We all like this song, 2 Timothy 1.12. I saw Ben smiling back there. Listen, you know the song? He says this, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to, to take care of me, to keep me. He is able to guard me and the, you know, as I've given myself to Him up until that day, I kind of botched that. But I'm persuaded that He is able to keep me until that day. What is He keeping? What does He know that He's... he's who's keeping Him? Well, He's given Himself to Jesus, and Jesus is going to guard and take care of Him until that day. Our text tells us that He knows something. What does our text tell us that the apostle knows? Well, He knows that affliction will turn out for his salvation. Look at verse 19. For I know this will turn out for my deliverance. The word there for deliverance is salvation. What is this in the text? What is this? This points back to the chains. This points back to the fact that he has not been delivered into Nero's hands in his prison, if you will, because of some criminal action, but he's there to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. This points back to the progress of the gospel while he's been in prison. Remember, he's sitting there between these two men, and he's sharing the gospel to all of these elite soldiers. There were 9,000 of them. He is not only sharing the gospel with them, but the Palace staff are hearing the gospel, and Nero's own household is hearing the gospel. And those who were out among the Romans, around Rome that during that time, there were people pre preaching with worthy motives and those preaching with unworthy motives. But he's happy that Christ is being preached. This points us forward to the trial that's coming. He is going to stand in front of Caesar... And he is going to receive a verdict. He will either be receiving a verdict of guilty and he will have his head severed from his body or he will be released back into the ordinary life. But whether he goes free or whether he's executed, he understands not to be sour. He's rejoicing. He could be sour. What do the kids say? Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll go eat worms. Isn't that what the kids say? You ever heard that little kid say that? He could be discouraged. He could feel mistreated. He, sh he could feel isolated. But he rejoices that he knows. And he knows afflictions will turn out for his deliverance, for his salvation. The apostle pulls this statement from Job thirteen sixteen that Michael just read for us. This also will be my salvation. Why does he pull that out? Well, because it represents exactly what he believes. Job, listen to what happens to Job. Job has been, he's lost his wealth, he's lost his family, he's lost his health, his wife has had a faith failure. Job, curse God and die. He's sitting on these ashes, he's scraping himself, and his friends come. The best, thing is, it is the best thing that his friends did, y'all know, you know, know what the best thing his friends did, right? They stayed quiet. They didn't say a word. For seven days, they just looked at him, and they saw that he was in such misery. They just totally stayed quiet. When they opened their mouths, they made all kinds of problems. They, they ruined it. 
So what did, what did they say to him? Well, let me just say this. Only people who have, got, who have sinned so terribly can be in such a bad situation. What did you do, Job? Well, you know what they don't know? They don't know Job, Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. What did God say about Job? You know what God said about Job? No one like him on the face of the earth. No one. I, I said to a young man who was getting married years ago, I looked at this, his name was Doug. I said, Doug, I want her to be able to say of you, there's no one like you on the face of the earth. There's no one like Job on the face of the earth. And Job, he is ready to defend, knows that he will be vindicated. He says in verse 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before God's presence. Behold, now I have prepared my case before God. I will be vindicated. My hope is in God. That is Paul's sentiment here. This affliction will lead to my salvation. There are many people who think that Paul is in prison because of, he, because of some sin of his own. But he knows whether he's delivered over to the emperor and into death or whether he's delivered by the emperor in a verdict of not guilty. He knows that this will be for his salvation. Affliction, prison, out of prison, in prison, suffering. He understands that all of these things add together for his salvation. How in the world does this apply to us? Well, go back to Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's three phases there. Phase number one, he begins the work. Phase number two, he continues the work. Phase number three, he completes the work. Well, I hope that God's begun the work in you and there's going to be an end of it down here. In the middle is the continuation part. And during that continuation part, during phase two, the continuing and the ongoing part, you and I are to rejoice that God is continuing to work in us. And Paul is telling us all affliction and all suffering and all difficulties are going to work together. They're all part of the deal. (laughs) Sort of like a painter. Think about a painter. A painter puts the finishing touches on the art. But until he's finished, he's always going, not done yet. Right? I've seen, we have, we have an artist in our home. We try to convince her that she's really pretty good. <laughs> we, she goes and she looks at it and she'll do something else, one thing to it. And then the next day she'll go and she'll do another something to it. And then she'll go and do wait on this and do that and do this until she's finally done with it. And we try to convince her that, wow, that's really good because <laughs> she, she wants to tear it up. Not done yet. That's what God's saying. Not finished yet. I don't know if you guys know who Master Penman Jake is. Master Penman Jake, 27 years old, he became a Master Penman at the age of 27. Nobody does that. He got married. When he got married, his wife said, I never knew that he was like this. Staying up all night long, doing the same picture over and over, tearing it up, throwing it away, tearing it up, throwing it away until he gets it the one he wants. And this is how God is working with us. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. God 
is taking care of you. God is putting the finishing touches on you. God is large. He's in charge and He is good. And He will never be toppled from His throne. And He wants you to be convinced. He wants you to be convinced that every circumstance... And listen, don't ever misunderstand. We would never say every circumstance is good because they're not. There's some things that are not good. But God takes the not good circumstances and the so good circumstances and He takes them all together and He works them together for our good. If God was a strength coach, guys, you know, and He told you you had to work your legs on weights three times a week, would you believe Him? (laughs) Now, guys who understand the gym, how many days a week do guys in the gym work out their legs? One day a week. Most bodybuilders, one day a week. Would you believe that that God understands training if he told you to do your legs three days a week? So I had this young man. He told me he wanted, he's 18 years old. He told me he wants to go and he wants to run fast 60-yard dashes. I told him you have to train your legs three days a week. He said, I'm not going to do that. He doesn't trust me. He doesn't believe in me, right? So he runs really slow 60s. Really slow, really slow. And then one day he doesn't get to do his bodybuilding workout with the boys because all the boys do the bodybuilding workout. And so he, does, he doesn't work out for nine days and he comes in and he runs faster. I said, how long has it been since you've done that workout? He said, it's been nine days. I said, do you believe me now? got to stop doing what the boys do and you got to do what somebody who knows what they're doing tells you to do. God says, if you'll do it this way, it will have these results. If you train my way, see, I went and I I studied all this stuff before I became a minister back, back to being in the OPC and all this. And I had a workout that I knew would take a guy that took a guy from throwing 59 feet in the shot put to throwing 71 feet. He won the gold medal. So I had researched and I knew what would work. Do you believe in your coach? Do you believe that God knows what he's talking about? One of God's spokesmen says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various afflictions and trials, knowing knowing that the testing of your faith will will produce endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, not done yet. Please run the play again. Please write that sentence again. Practice makes permanent another rep. God is going to save you. God's going to complete you, perfect you, mature you for heaven through this path. Romans 5, 2, and 3 says, And we exult in the glory of God, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. And here's that word again. Knowing that tribulations... Bring about perseverance. And perseverance, one commentator put, put it this way. This is worth writing down. Perseverance is loyalty to God in the greatest difficulties. Loyalty to God in the greatest difficulties. You and I have no need to fear the outcome of any event, knowing that this, whatever this event is, will turn out for your salvation. Now, isn't that a different way to look at life? Unexpected events, uncalled for events, 
wicked events, events that happen like in Uvalde, Texas, when people's hearts break and want justice. Well, you know something? I promise you there will be justice. Jesus will do perfect justice in the future. This, Paul says, will turn out for my salvation. You need to say this will turn out for my salvation. This pain, this sorrow, this prison, this is part of what God is doing to save me. He's putting his finishing touches on me. In our text, what else does he know? Well, here's an interesting one. He says this, He knows salvation comes through the provision of the Spirit in answer to the prayers of the church. Now, I struggle when I give you that long, that long sentence because I know that's hard to remember. Well, let me tell you why I put it like that. He comes, salvation comes through the provision of the Spirit in answer to the prayers of the church. Now look at verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I wanted to say it like this. Salvation comes through prayer and salvation comes through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And here's why. Because the prayers of the Philippian church and the provision of the Spirit of God can't be separated. You see? You see, Paul understands that he needs supply. What's the supply he needs? He needs the supply of the Spirit of Jesus. How does he get the supply of the Spirit of Jesus? Only through the prayers of the Philippian church. And so he's pleading for them to pray that he might have that provision through their prayers. He will be in want if they don't do it. So it's through prayers. Think about this. How does God begin the good work in you? We're back to phase one. How does God begin the good work in you? He begins it through the word. Now these are the, this is the, uh, somebody asked me, I I probably said this to you before. Somebody asked me when I went to California, they said, what is the, what is the strategic plan of the church? Fourth, I'm adding a fourth, there's three things. You guys know this. Word, sacraments, prayer, and I'm going to add fellowship. We'll put fellowship over there. How does God begin the work in you? Word, the sacraments, prayer, and fellowship. How does God continue and sustain you in your uh, continuing part of the salvation? Well, word, sacraments, prayer, and fellowship. And so Paul is urging the Philippian church to pray that he would have the Spirit. He needs this provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I need the Spirit of Jesus Christ to work in me now. And I know that the only way I can really have Him is for you to pray for me to have Him. So the apostle is saying, I need an unseen, invisible provision. I need an unseen, invisible supply to undergird me so that I can be a person who stands in front of Nero in the future ready to do so. Let me put it in terms I think we can understand. Behind every good man, there's a what? We like to say this. Behind every good man, there's a what? You know. Um, if you have a really good ankle, like a runner has a really good ankle, what's underneath that ankle that you don't see? Ligaments that hold it together and give it integrity. Behind all these walls, there's two by fours. You don't see them. A friend, let me tell you, let me tell you what happened one time. I, my dog, he probably did something wrong. I was chasing him. It was late. It is dark. Really, and everybody's asleep. 
And I went up the stairs and I grabbed hold of him and I came back down and I was going to go only for two steps, I thought, but I went for three. And I went into the wall. And I was praising God that I went through the sheetrock and not into a two by four. Why? I might have broke my shoulder if I ran into a two by four because behind all the walls, there's stuff that reinforce it and hold it in place. Sometimes... Sometimes when we have a drama going on and there's actors there behind the curtains, there's a choir and the choir singing. And it's so cool to have just this neat sound as the actors are doing their work on the stage. And Paul is praying for this spirit of Jesus Christ that you can't see to be there, to strengthen him, to undergird him. Jesus Christ not only rules from his throne and cannot be toppled from it, but he also rules and lives in every one of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And your salvation and my salvation is based is going to be partly based on the fact that we pray for one another to have the Spirit. That's what he's telling us. We need the Spirit, the two-by-fours inside of us. How do we have them? How do we have those two-by-fours? When we pray for each other, how do we know that we have this powerful, these, this integrity, these good ligaments inside of us? Well, we need the church to pray for us. The prayers of the church and the provision of the Spirit are knit together. Now, it would be real easy for us to think, how in the world can that work? Because we have human, um, human agency and we have divine power. Some people would say, no, 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 that doesn't work that way. But that's how God says it works. God gives us His Spirit through prayer. Now, I want you to think about this because this is hard sometimes. See, I'm talking to me right now. Sometimes I haven't really wanted to ask the church to pray for me. Have you ever thought I'm weak right now and I'm just flat right now and my marriage is going bad right now and my work is going bad right now because I haven't asked the church to pray for me? I haven't asked the church to pray that God would give His Spirit to me, the Spirit of Jesus to me. That's what Paul's asking for. Have you ever thought, I need to pray and ask the church to pray for me so that I might have this supply? Oh, but I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm just going to pray for everybody else. I'm not going to ask them to pray for me. I, I, I'm guilty of this. When children are brought, when babies are brought to be baptized, or when adults come and they're baptized, the pastor always charges the parents to pray for their children. And the, parent, the pastor always charges the congregation to pray for the children and for the adult, for the parents. If those babies of ours, if a person who comes and says, I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if their salvation is based on your prayers, will they be saved Act like it totally depends on you. Now, we all know it's sovereign grace. We all know, but God's saying He uses our prayers. And do we believe it enough to say, Hey, look, I need you to pray for me. And will we mean it enough? Will we take this to heart and say, God says to pray for those folks. Pray for your mama. Do you believe that God will use your prayers? He says He does. 
It's all, if it's all based on me, you know, sometimes I, I sit here and I think to myself, okay, I'm going to act like everything depends on me for the sermon. I'm going to study my heart out. I'm going to read everything I can read. I'm going to study and write and study and write. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to trust God to use the sermon. But I'm thinking I've got to use all, he uses humans. He uses weak people like me. Sometimes, you know, gets his words screwed up or backwards. Sentences, you know, they don't always come out right, right? We give it all we've got and we go, Lord, use this. You and I are to pray for one another in the church as if that they will not be saved, they will not be sanctified apart from our prayers. And listen, let me put it like this. It's not enough to know that you should pray. You know to pray. Here's the thing. Do you pray? <laughs> I know to pray. But go out and pray. Actually do it. We have a great high priest. I love the picture. I love the picture of Jesus sitting high and exalted. And I love the picture of him praying down grace from heaven for us in this place. So that we don't quit. I love the picture of that and I think to myself, I need to go into my prayer closet and I need to pray for you and here we are in this prayer box right now and we need to pray for each other to have the spirit of Jesus. Well, there's two more things and he tells us there, there's certain things that he knows and he says this, he says, God will not disappoint him. He says there, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope. When you see the word hope, just put the word certainty there. Certainty. According to my expectation and, and this certainty, this is a certain hope. God never changes. Christ is going to come again and God will not disappoint us. He says here, he expresses it in the negative. He says that, let me read it here, that I will not be put to shame in anything. Now, when we think about shame, we think about somebody who's done something wrong. Have you ever done anything wrong, felt guilty for it? When I was in college, I was in organic chemistry, and we were having a hard time figuring something out. There were five of us. We'd get together, and we always sit and study every day. Well, I thought I figured it out. And so I showed all my friends how to do this one organic chemistry problem. And that day, we had a quiz, and we all missed it. We all got zeros. And I went back and I told all my friends, I said, I'm sorry. I'm ashamed. I taught you wrong. I felt guilty for that. Sometimes when we think about shame, we feel about guilt. I had a friend of mine in high school who did something he was very ashamed of and he was acting out for several months. I was the only person that stuck out and stuck with him until finally he told me what he had done. He was ashamed. Well, that's not what we're talking about here when he says, will not be put to shame in anything. Let's see if we can get, let me see if we can get to this really. This is something that should encourage us. In Romans 9, 20, 33, the apostle quotes Isaiah 28, 16, and he says this, Just as it is, it is written, Behold, a landsign, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed or will not be put to shame. Romans 8, 10, 8 through 11 says that the person who believes on this cornerstone, on Jesus, the person who confesses Jesus with his mouth and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead 
you will be saved. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not disappointed, not put to shame. So when we confess Jesus Christ, we're not going to be guilty. We're not going to be put to shame. We're not going to be disappointed. In fact, we're, he's saying he's confident in God's faithfulness. Paul knows from the Old Testament that God comes to the aid of those who stand for him. Did you, did you get that? God comes to the aid of those who stand for him. So you've got boys in a, in a, before Nebuchadnezzar, those th three Hebrew boys, and they tell Nebuchadnezzar, we're standing for God. And God actually appeared in that heated up fiery furnace, and he was with them. He stood with them. The same thing happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. Apostle Paul, he goes out, follow me, he goes out to the day of judgment, and he understands, Matthew 10, 32, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. He's gone out and stood before God, and Jesus has stood with him there. He marches all the way back to this present situation, and he goes, Jesus, who stands with me there, stands with me here. Jesus stands with you. He's not disappointed in you. You will not be embarrassed because of it. You will not be guilty because of it. You should be confident that he stands with you. He understands Roman, I mean in 2 Timothy 4:17, he says this, when all the others deserted me, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And I sometimes I like to know what that really means. <laughs> did he did he was Jesus right there with him? In 2 Timothy, this is right before he dies. What's that mean? But he knew the Lord was with him. And God is faithful, beloved. This is what the apostles telling us. If you confess Jesus Christ to be your Lord, if you give your life to him, if you give your family to him, he's not at the very last going to abandon you. Perish the thought. Absolutely absurd. You will not be disappointed if you confess faith in Christ. And what a day to do it. God is your rock. God is your refuge. God is your resource. Jesus Christ is your cornerstone. Jesus says, build your life on a rock. I am the rock. My words are the rock. And if the winds come and the rain comes and the floods come, you will not fail. You will not be disappointed. He will not disappoint you. He will not pay off in counterfeit bills. He's going to be there, stand with you, strengthen you. He will never leave you, never forsake you. Do you believe it? You'll not be disappointed. Well, finally, he says this. He knows this for certain. Christ will be exalted in his body. This is certain. This is absolutely certain. He knows that Christ is going to be exalted in his body. In fact, Christ has always been exalted in his body since when? We studied our men's group, right? Acts 9. Since then, when he called on the name of the Lord, from that point on, Christ has been exalted in his body. You say, well, perfectly? No, not perfectly. But Christ has been exalted in his body from that day to this day. He's going to be exalted in his body when he stands before Caesar. Exalted means, I don't like doing this, but I'm going to do it. Exalted means made great. Let me give you all the definitions I found in all the books. Christ shines out. Praised and worshipped. Made large. 
magnified in his body. You, when you give yourself to Christ, you can only magnify him in your body. This body of ours, we should take care of it. We should wash it, comb this hair, take care of it for our wives. But because this is how God exalt is, is Jesus is exalted through a body like ours. So we place ourselves on the altar of God and we burn up for his glory. We're consumed for him. We're to be a sweet aroma for Jesus Christ. The instruments of your body are laid out for him. Your hands are to exalt him by what you touch. Your eyes are to exalt Jesus Christ by what you see. Your mind is to exalt Jesus Christ by how you think, what you read, how you talk to other people. Your mouth is to exalt Jesus Christ and your body is to be a showroom. Have you ever seen a showroom? You know these showroom? You know, have you in your house, many of you, you have a what? You have a what's in the middle of the house? There's a big old thing called a TV. And all the chairs are all situated, focused on the TV. And you know what everybody's supposed to see in your life? Not the TV, supposed to see Jesus. The lights are all focused on Jesus, and Jesus is supposed to be exalted in your body. Apart from Jesus Christ, you will be exalted. I, 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 was, I was excited because this came to my mind. I want to tell you what it came to my mind. In 2000, probably eight or nine, I'm at Walmart, and I'm standing in line. And this is before COVID, Right, 2009? I'm standing in line and there's a man standing in front of me and on the back of his shirt it says, it's all about me. And I stood 10 feet back from him. I didn't need COVID. I didn't need Fauci to tell me six feet. I stood back. You know why? Because if it was all about him, I was afraid that it might involve me. What would happen if he got at odds with the cashier? I didn't want to be a part of that because it's all about me. And if it's all about me, it's not a pretty picture. But if it's all about Jesus, all, that, all about Jesus, well, it's a beautiful picture. Jesus Christ will be exalted in our bodies. You and I are to rejoice because we know afflictions will turn out for our, our salvation. We are to rejoice because we know salvation comes through the provision of the Spirit. Let me get it right. In answer to the prayers of Good Shepherd, OPC. And we're to rejoice because God will not disappoint us. And we are to rejoice because Christ will be exalted in every one of our bodies as we are putting our faith and trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word. Thank You for Your Apostle of Jesus Christ. Not a perfect man, but oh, a man who loved You with all his heart. We thank You for him. We thank You for what we learn from him and we pray that we might rejoice because of what we know we are persuaded that you're able to keep us guard us and keep us until that day when jesus comes we praise you for that we pray that we would leave and walk away from here knowing that we ask it in jesus name amen